I woke up a little confused this morning. Uh, there was this strangeness about the day, uh, so I had to do some research. I discovered that thing in the sky is called the sun. Uh, some of us, I think, forgot that. Uh, with like, what was it, like 6,000 years of rain, it feels like, the last week. Uh, so I'm really thankful to, to see sunshine today, and I hope it is encouraging you as much as it's encouraging me. Well, uh, have you ever had a time in life where you just knew you were supposed to do something, and yet you knew there were going to be some obstacles that you were going to have to overcome. Like maybe there were some people who were going to be opposed to it, but despite the opposition, you just knew, I have to do this. Anyone ever feel that? Because that was a little bit of my journey in planting this church. Uh, I first had to overcome the obstacle of my internal doubter. Like, like when I sense God saying, Aaron, I want you to leave your job as the young adult pastor of this church and go and start a new church, the first person I had to overcome was myself. I, I doubted that I had what it took to be a lead pastor, to, to preach every Sunday, to help really plant a church and start it. I, I had heard the stories of how hard it was, and I just didn't think I was cut out for it. But just as I was beginning to overcome the internal doubter, then I had to face the, out, uh, the outside doubters. Uh, there was a guy in Cedar Rapids who uh, found out that I was thinking about planting a church, that I'd gone through a church planting assessment center, and that they had recommended me for church planting. And he looked at me and says, yeah, but they probably tell everyone that. And he wasn't joking. Uh, then in Kansas City, where I was doing a leadership residency, I had one person there tell me, Aaron, I, I don't think you're an A-team type of leader. You're more like for the B-team. Those are the words used. And then even after we got here to Waverly, I had one person after our third uh, preview service say, you're not a very good preacher, I, and you really shouldn't be starting a church. Now, those of you who know me know that I'm not very confrontational. Like, I, I don't really like getting in your face because I'm like some of you. I'm a people pleaser. Like, I'm an Enneagram 9. I'm a peacemaker. And so when someone says these things to me, it hurts, and it hurts deep. It, it, it'll send me into an emotional tailspin. And what it did was as I faced these outside doubters, it re-rose the internal doubter. And I doubted all again if God was calling me to start a church. And so that's why I ended up not knowing what I'm doing. And so I hired a church planning coach. His name is Steve. Many of you have met Steve. He's been here and, and taught before. But, but one time I'm pouring out my heart, my tears, everything to, to Steve just to let him know, this is hard. It's not going well. People don't seem to think I can do this. And I'm starting to believe them. Well, this is probably about the fourth time I'd done it. In the previous three times, Steve would always go, Aaron, grab your Bible. Let's open it up. And he'd take me to some passage that would just speak directly to me and would encourage my heart and help me keep going. But this time, Steve did something different. Steve looked at me through my computer, looked into the camera on his computer, and he said, Aaron, maybe it is time to shut down the church. And I looked at him like, I think my jaw dropped. Like, I'm thinking, wait a second. I, I've hired you to encourage me. Like, what are you doing? And he says, Aaron, this is like the fourth time. You've told me these things. Maybe it is time to stop. And he goes, and if you stop, you have nothing to be ashamed of. You took a step of faith. You did something that almost no one does. So you have not failed. But maybe it's time to shut things down. But then Steve continued. And he said, Aaron, I can't make that call for you, though. And, and honestly, Aaron, you can't even make that call for you. Only God can make that call. So Aaron... What does God seem to be saying? What is your heart telling you? And in that moment, I knew I have to keep going. God was the one who said, I want you to start this, 
And I didn't sense him saying, okay, it's now time to stop. And so I had to keep going. Despite the external doubts, despite the internal doubts, I had to keep going. So again, I ask you, have you ever been there? Have you ever faced something where there seems to be all this opposition, but you know this is the right thing to do? I have to keep going. Maybe you felt like God was calling you to start a business, but yet it just didn't make sense because you've been uh, uh, working this job, you've been making a good salary, and yet you just know, I'm supposed to do this. And everyone around you thinks you're crazy. Like, why would you quit a good job? You don't have the finances for this. This doesn't make sense. And yet inside you know, I have to do this. Or maybe there was a particular person that you just know, I'm supposed to spend my life with this person. And yet, there were certain people around you who were going, I don't think this is the right person. I don't think you should do this. And yet, something deep down told you, I'm supposed to marry this person. Now, I'm going to put a little caveat on this, a little disclaimer. Because you see, we are really, really good at lying to ourselves. There there are times when we want something, but we know that's not going to be good for us. And yet we will convince ourselves, oh, but I heard a pastor one time say, in the face of obstacles, you must keep going. So guess what? I'm just going to keep going with this. Even though deep down I know this is not the right thing. You see, part of what it was able to keep me going in the face of the external doubters was also the external encouragement. Because even in the midst of the people saying, yeah, I don't think you're called to do this, there were other people who I knew loved me, knew me, and said, Aaron, I know you're supposed to do this. You have to keep going. So when you have someone that you are attracted to, but you have family that loves you and cares for you, you've got friends who want what's best for you, and they're saying, I don't think you should marry that person, you might want to listen to them. But you know, sometimes, deep down, we know this is the right thing. In the face of the opposition, I have to keep going. And the reason we're talking about this today is because this is what we're going to see Jesus go through. Today, Jesus is going to face some opposition. There are going to be people who are going to doubt him. They're going to be standing opposed to him. They're even going to take offense. And we're going to see what it is that Jesus does. What does he do when people are against him? Does he retaliate? Does he give up? Or does he keep going? Because in our day and age, when we've, if you're a Jesus follower, you've been called to the mission of God. And what are you going to do when people come against you? Are you going to retaliate? Are you going to give up? Or are you going to keep going? We're going to see today how to live like Jesus. So if you brought a Bible, open it up to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. If you are a first-time guest with us, my name is Aaron, uh, teaching pastor here at Riverwood, and I'm really, really glad you're joining us. Whether you're here at Drossy or you're joining us online, uh, every single week we open up the Bible together. And so when you come back next week, make sure you bring your Bible if you didn't bring one today. Uh, at Riverwood, we don't care if it's a digital Bible or a paper copy. So if you've got a Bible on your phone, totally feel free to open that up and, and open the Bible there. Or if you need a paper copy and don't have one, we'd love to give one to you. We've got some high-quality paper uh, copies of the Bible. Just give us your address. We'll mail one to you, and that way you can make it your everyday Bible. As we get ready to dive back into the book of Mark, uh, heading to chapter 6, uh, let me uh, pray. Well, Heavenly Father, uh, I have put time in this week. I have prepared what uh, I feel you want me to say, but now is it, is it time I realize that Anything I've prepared could be completely useless without you. So God, I pray that you now take over. 
that you would work through anything that I've prepared to say and you make it yours. And you would speak to the hearts and minds of your people. This wouldn't be about what I want to accomplish, but uh, rather what you need to accomplish in the hearts of those listening. So Lord, I pray for those who are your children, that they are your followers. I pray that you would encourage them today through the preaching of your word. I pray for anyone who does not know you, whether they're right here with us at Drosty Hall or they're joining us online, that if today is the day that's going to be their spiritual birthday, that you would open their eyes to their need for Jesus. Because what this world needs is people who will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And as we hear that yet again today, looking at the life of Jesus here in Mark 6, help those who don't know you to find you and those who have found you to follow you ever closely. Uh, So God, this time is yours. Do with it what you need to. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Last week, as we finished up chapter 5, we saw Jesus perform two miracles. Uh, We saw him heal a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. Uh, All she did was touch his clothing, and she was healed like that. And then Jesus followed that up by raising a little girl from the dead. Uh, And so uh, what we saw last week was that Jesus did these miracles for all. uh, Because the little girl was the daughter of the synagogue ruler. And so we see Jesus show love to this rich, prominent, wealthy man in his community. And yet he also shows love to this poor, totally ignored, sick woman. And we discovered that Jesus is for all. And so if we're going to love like Jesus, we have to love all. Well, if last week was how to love like Jesus, I would say this week is how to live like Jesus. And so let's see that here in chapter 6. Let me read aloud verses 1 through 6 as you silently read along. He, Jesus, went away from there. So he's just left Jairus' house. He went away from there and came to his hometown. He grew up in a town called Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How were such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there. Oh, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. If you have been tracking with us here in the book of Mark, I want you to take a moment to think through kind of the previous five chapters. What all have we seen Jesus do? Well, we've seen Jesus kick a couple of demons out of some guys. Uh, we've seen Jesus heal a man who had a shriveled hand, cleaned another guy of leprosy. Uh, we remember the story of the, of the guy who was paralyzed and his four friends brought him and they couldn't get to Jesus. And so they climbed up on the roof of the house. They ripped a hole and they lowered their friend down. And Jesus healed the man of his paralysis. Uh, we, we saw three weeks ago, Jesus um, stop a storm. And then last week we saw him raise a girl from the dead. And this doesn't even get into the type of teaching, the power of his teaching. Mark has been telling us over and over how people have just gathered to hear Jesus teach because he taught unlike any other rabbi. So you would think that someone like Jesus would come home, come back to Nazareth, and that they would give him a hero's welcome. I mean, just a couple of years ago, uh, Natty Poppy was in the American Idol uh, contest, and she was down in one of the final three uh, finalists. 
And, and she, uh, the, each of the finalists had to go home and put on a concert. So she comes back here to Iowa. They go to the Butler County Fairgrounds, and they held a concert. And, uh, you know, the, the film crew from ABC is there. They show the whole entire thing. Well, not the whole entire thing, but, you know, clips of it. And Iowa was thrilled. Like, Governor Reynolds called that Maddie Poppy Day. Like, for the whole state of Iowa. Even if she didn't win, which thankfully she did go on to win, but even if she didn't win, Iowa was just thrilled to have an Iowan achieving something on a national stage. Like, this doesn't happen very often for us Iowans. You know, we were thrilled. In fact, now that Maddie's won it all, they're going to name a park after her in Clarksville. Right? She's a hero to them. You would think that Jesus, who's performing all of these miracles, healing people, teaching unlike anyone else, that he'd come home and they would put a sign outside of Nazareth saying, Nazareth, home of Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph, the carpenter, winner of Israel idols, preaching contest or whatever. Like you would think that they're like, man, no one likes Nazareth. We're looked down upon like those Iowans. Like finally something good. Let's tout this. Let's give him a hero's welcome. But that is not what they do at all. Look at it. Verse 2 and 3. It says, And on the Sabbath, all right, so all the Jews, they gathered together at the synagogue. He began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. Okay, now we've heard this before in Mark. People hear him teach and they're astonished. So at first we're thinking they're like really in awe of him. And listen to the things they say. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So at first we're thinking they're really impressed. Like, this guy's incredible. Just like we've seen the other people in, in the book of Mark. But keep going with verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They took offense. Why? We humans, we have this uh, uncanny ability to categorize. We, we, we see someone and we, we put them into a category. Or we, we see something and we fit it into a category. And once we get it in its category, we want it to stay there. Because we understand it when it's in that box. That's why when you see a friend, uh, like five, ten years later, and you saw their children, you would put their children in the box of little kids. Now ten years later, they're taller than you. And so you say stupid things like, wow, you've really grown. As if we didn't expect them to grow because we categorize them as little kids. And so therefore, they for eternity should remain little. It's why when I was in uh, Colorado working at a church plant, I was the worship director. And, and I told some of the people there that I was feeling called to go back into like more pastoral type ministry. Because when we had been in Venezuela, I was kind of the campus youth pastor, and I missed the counseling and the teaching. And so I, I felt like I needed to step away from music and do this. And the people there at the church looked at me, and they're like, you can't do that. Like, in their head, I was the music guy. They couldn't imagine me, like, counseling someone or teaching. And yet I get to Cedar Rapids, become the young adult pastor, and people there found out I used to be a worship pastor. And they'd look at me and go, you can't do music. Like, you fit the box of young adult pastor. That, that's not you. And then I tell some people, I'm feeling called to go and plant a church. No, you're the young adult pastor. You're, you're not a lead pastor. You can't do that. We, we do this all the time with people and things. And that's exactly what the Nazarenes did. They knew Jesus' story. So they had it in their head. He's categorized as a carpenter, not a rabbi. He's categorized as, you know, the son of Mary and Joseph, not the son of God. And they also had him categorized as the young man who was born out of wedlock. 
because Mary ended up pregnant before she and Joseph were officially married. And they kept him in that category, that God can't use anyone born in sin. So how can this guy get this sort of wisdom? How can this guy do these sort of mighty works? Because we know his family. We know the story. How dare he come in here telling us he's a prophet? So he didn't fit their category. So they reject him. But Jesus, if you noticed, he wasn't surprised by that at all. Look at verse 4. He says, a prophet is not without honor, well, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. You see, the people back then, they, they thought a prophet had to come from nowhere. Like they just would appear. But no, when, when you come from my house, when you come from my community, when, when you come from my region, uh, no, you, you can't be a prophet. Because we always get this idea that the best are out there, not in here. I think this is why some churches, when they get ready to hire new staff, they almost always hire outside the church, rarely from within, because they fall into this mistake of categorization. They see someone and they put them in a category, and they may see them as a great church attender, as, as a great volunteer in, in the kids' ministry, as a, a great small group leader. But to bring them on staff? Ah, no, the, the, we got to go outside to get the better ones, the true one, because that person, they're in this category. I'm so thankful that Riverwood doesn't operate this way. If we did, Bridget wouldn't be our Kids Creek leader. Uh, many of you know this, but a few of you might not. My, my wife, Leanne, actually led our ministry, uh, the Kids Creek ministry, for probably about, what, three, four years? It, it wasn't what she is designed to do. She did great at it. She loved our kids. She taught so well, but it wasn't the place for her to thrive. But as she's, you know, meeting parents and starts asking them, hey, will you come in and volunteer? There's this one lady, Bridget, and Bridget just comes and starts helping out. And Leanne watched the way she'd work with the kids. And she's like, man, she's really good. And then she finds out she's got like a teaching background, an education degree. All right, would you try teaching? And so Bridget starts teaching. And Leanne's like, she's really, really good. And then watches Bridget interact with other people. And pretty soon Leanne's driving home with me after church on Sunday saying, I think this Bridget lady can do this better than I can do this. Leanne refused to let Bridget remain categorized as just a mom, as just a nice person, someone who's good with kids. Like, continued to let her become who she is. And now we as a church benefit from that. We are reaping the fruit because Leanne refused to let Bridget remain in a category. But Jesus knew they had him categorized and they would not see him anything else. They could not accept him as a prophet. And that's why they rejected him. But how does Jesus handle the rejection? Does he retaliate? Because, I mean, that's, that's the natural thing to do. To, to, to like launch after someone because they, they just hurt you. In fact, in Luke uh, chapter 9, there's a story where Jesus is on his way from Galilee, the northern region, and he's on his way down to Jerusalem. And in doing what Jesus likes to do, he's going to pass through Samaria. If you go to John chapter 4, you learn about a time Jesus passed through Samaria, and he stops at a well and has a, a conversation with a woman. We know her as the Samaritan woman. And so Jesus has passed through Samaria, so he's not an unknown to them. But when they find out he's not going to stop and stay in their town there in Samaria, that he's continuing on to Jerusalem, the town's like, well, fine, you can't come in. And so they refuse to welcome him. So James and John, Jesus, two of Jesus' disciples, they took offense on Jesus' behalf. So they looked at Jesus and said, do you want us to call down fire on him? Like, they just hurt us? Do you want us to hurt them? This is what we do. We, we retaliate. In fact, just a few weeks ago, 
I was reconnecting with a guy that uh, I used to be his pastor in Cedar Rapids. We're, we've now both moved on. He's out of state. You know, I'm here in Waverly. But he's been going through a really, really, really difficult time. And so he's been reaching out to just a handful of people who he feels like could help bring counsel to him, pray for him, encourage him as he's struggling. Well, in his struggle, he was going to actually be passing through Cedar Rapids. So he called a couple of former friends, asking if he could just like crash on their couch. And they said no. My friend was so hurt by this, so angry that these people would not let him come into the home, show him hospitality, that he actually prayed for the destruction of Cedar Rapids. Yeah, a little overboard, don't you think? Two people. He got so angry, he prayed that God would destroy Cedar Rapids. Well, guess what? A week later, the derecho hit. He thought that was God's answer to his prayer. He, th- he takes credit for it. That's what we do, isn't it? We get hurt. We want to hurt others. You hurt me. I want to see you destroyed. So here are the people of Nazareth. Looking at the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, created them, knows them in their story, who's going to go and die on a cross for their sins, and they reject him. And what does he do? Retaliate? Send a derecho? No. Look, look at it. It's right there in verse 5. It says, he laid his hands on them. He kept going. It says down there in verse 6, he went about among the villages teaching. In other words, he didn't quit. Now, I need to stop here for a second and do an aside. Because verse 5 especially has something that for me has been uncomfortable in the past. It's right there in the first part. Now let me read 5 in the first part of 6. And he, Jesus, could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. The reason this passage has been uncomfortable for me is because my church background, my church tradition, used that verse right there, verse 5, as a proof text on the importance of faith. That God is not able to do anything for you until you have enough faith in him. So the reason you don't have a job or the reason you don't have a spouse or the reason you aren't able to have kids or the reason you don't have enough money or the reason you don't have a cure is because you don't have enough faith. God is sitting there wanting to give this to you, but you just need to give him enough faith. It's like you've got to give the spinach to Popeye. You know, give God the faith and wham, bam, Superman comes out and you now get your miracle. But let me ask you a question. Whose faith was Jesus feeding off of when he stopped the storm at the end of chapter 4? It sure wasn't the disciples. They're they're right there in the boat with him, and they're scared spitless. I mean, this storm is overwhelming them. When they wake Jesus, it's because they're, first of all, shocked that he can sleep through a storm. And second, they're afraid. Don't you, like, care what's happening to us? Like, start bailing water with us. Come on, we're going to die. But then Jesus stands up, just says, peace, be still. The wind stops, the waves calm, and it says that the disciples were filled with great fear. They're now more afraid of this guy who had the power to stop the storm than they were of the storm itself, which they thought was going to kill them. So Jesus, when he performed that miracle, was not feeding off of their faith. Or how about two weeks ago, when we saw Jesus come across on a boat, and he gets outside, and this demon-possessed man comes running at him, we find out the man is filled with thousands of demons. They call themselves legion. Was, whose faith was Jesus relying on in order to perform the miracle and kick those demons out? Because it sure wasn't the faith of the man. The demons had control of the man. The demons did not have faith in Jesus. 
And yet Jesus performs the miracle anyway. You see, God is not sitting around helpless waiting for you to pay a faith tax. You do not have to give him a faith bribe in order to get. So what does Mark mean then when he says there in verse 5 that he could do no mighty work there? I I like how uh, Wolverd and Zuck put it in their commentary, uh, the Bible knowledge commentary. They said this, There was no limitation on his power, but his purpose was to perform miracles in the presence of faith. And only a few here had faith to come to him for healing. You see, Jesus could have done more, but the people weren't even coming to him because they didn't believe. Only a few had the faith. And so when they came, he could do it, but it wasn't because he had to feed off their faith. You see, Jesus could have done more, even if he had, the people had already rejected him. They wouldn't have believed it if they saw it. Just, uh, what, three, four years ago, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs were absolutely mocked for trading up in the NFL draft to get the 10th round pick, and with it, they, bought, they uh, drafted Patrick Mahomes. Patrick had been said by all the pro scouts, this guy will never make it in the NFL. He is too erratic. He's not an NFL prototype quarterback. He will throw way too many interceptions. He will be harried. He is not going to make it. If anything, he might be a good backup, but that's about it. And so when the Chiefs traded up to get him, everyone was like, what are they doing? Like, even Chiefs fans were like, oh, no. We did, like, there were so many other good quarterbacks. Why did we do this? And now all of those mockers are eating their words because last year, uh, Patrick Mahomes was the NFL MVP. This past year, he was the Super Bowl MVP. And he's setting records that no one else has even come close to setting. People saw the skill when he was in college, but they didn't believe it. Nazarenes are looking at Jesus right there in their synagogue, and they don't believe it. And so it wasn't that Jesus is sitting there helpless. Oh, I wish I could do something, but they just don't have enough faith. It's that they weren't even coming to him, and they wouldn't have believed it even if they saw it. But for those who did have the faith, for those who did come, for those who said, I believe you, he healed them, he loved them. And he kept going. He didn't quit. He didn't retaliate. He healed, he preached, he served, he loved, he kept on mission. And that brings up an important point in this. Because you might be listening to this, and you may be thinking, all right, so my application today is I need to go and persevere. Well, actually, that's only half of it. If that's all you walk away with today, you're, you're making a mistake. You're missing the main point. Now, now, don't mishear me. Like, if you're an athlete, by all means, persevere in practice, persevere in the games. Like, that's being a good teammate. I believe that's going to give glory to God, but that is not the point today. Like, if you are struggling in school, you're facing a big project at work, please, persevere at it. I think to persevere is going to give glory to God, but that is not the point today. The point is to live like Jesus means we persevere in the mission of God. Jesus knew why he came to earth. He was here to point people, to bring entrance into God's kingdom. And he knew that the doorway into the kingdom, the gate, was himself. So that's why he was going to go to the cross, to die for our sins, to rise again from the dead, to show he has power over all things. And then he invites us into God's kingdom. That was why he came. That was his mission. 
And if you follow Jesus, to live like Jesus means you also have to take up that same mission. But I have to warn you, when you take up that mission, you will face doubters. There will be people from your past who are going to look at you, and they're going to say, but we knew you when you were little. Yeah, we were there at that party. We know about what took place on that night. We, we've heard you lie and gossip. We've seen the things you've done. And now you walk in here trying to act all holy? In that moment, don't retaliate. Don't, don't seek to insult back. Don't even seek to try and justify. Own it. Confess it. Yeah, I did those things. If I could go back, I'd do it differently. But I'm going to tell you, God's changed my life. And then you just seek to continue to love them, to continue on the mission that God has given you, to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. But it isn't going to be just people from your past who are going to doubt you. It's even going to be people in your present. It's going to be people from work. It's going to be people from school. It's going to be your neighbors. They're going to look at you and they're going to doubt your motivations. They're going to question why you do what you do. They're, they're going to think you're fake. They're going to assume certain things about you, and they're going to categorize you. Don't categorize them back. Don't retaliate. Don't pray for derechos against them. You just seek to love them and live like Jesus lived among them. Now, I need to point out one other thing. That when you face these, uh, these people, when you face these doubts, you need to realize that's actually a gift. See, Jesus didn't have to analyze his heart, but you and I, we do. Because even if you're a Jesus follower, it's still possible that sometimes your motivations will get jumbled. That the reason you're serving is so that you look good. You're, you're trying to impress people. Sometimes we get things mixed up and we think that I need to do this to make God happy. No, 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 no. God's already happy with you because of what Jesus did on the cross. You're his child. He loves you. He embraces you. Sometimes we try to do things because we just want to get something from someone else. Like, oh, if I do this, then they'll do that for me. I scratch their back, they'll scratch mine. But that's not the Jesus way, though. And so when you face some doubt, when you face some opposition... Rather than go into an emotional tailspin like I did, welcome it as a gift. Let it be a purifying process where you ask yourself, why am I doing this? What is my purpose? And if you start checking your heart and you start realizing, you know what, I'm not doing this for God's glory. I'm, I'm actually doing this for my glory. Confess the sin right there and then there. Confess it. Pray that God would purify you and then begin again. Because, as I keep saying every single week, what this world desperately needs are people who will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And so when you have someone who doubts you, accept the gift, analyze your heart, allow God to use it to purify you, and begin again. Because there are people right now pushing their agendas, whether it's their politics, their worldview, whatever it is, and they think they're going to bring healing, but what they're doing is they're actually bringing fractures they're, they're widening the rifts. And what we need are some people who will come in like Jesus and they still help bring bridges. Jesus described it himself in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. 
The very first part of, uh, of his sermon we call the Beatitudes. Let me just read the second half of the Beatitudes as we close. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God wants you on his mission. He loves this world. He loves these people. They bear his image, but they are crashing around. And he's brought in the cure, Jesus. But the way he accomplishes people finding Jesus is through you. So to live like Jesus means you have to give mercy. You have to be pure in heart. You, you have to be a peacemaker. And yes, some people will doubt you. They'll revile you. They'll be opposed to you. Blessed are you. Your reward will be great. You just keep on the mission. You just keep being a blessing. You keep loving like Jesus loved. You don't have to fight and argue the politics. You don't have to fight and argue the things the culture's talking about. You just seek to love, to listen. And it's difficult to do that in the moment. That's so why you pray for God to just empower you through his spirit and to help you begin again. So may you keep going with God's mission, even in the face of opposition. Heavenly Father, it's easy to say these things. It's another thing to live it. So I pray that you would, for anyone who is here that is your, your son, your daughter, that, they, that you have filled them with your Holy Spirit, that they, that they would walk in the power of that Spirit. You tell us in the Scriptures that the same uh, power that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in us. So help us to live in that power to bring this kind of love and attention to people. Because right now our world is, is dividing on so many different issues. And what they need is the healing balm of the gospel. And you call us to be the ones to bring this healing into this world. And, and so Jesus, you, you had people opposed to you, and yet you kept going. Help us to do the same. That we would not retaliate, that we wouldn't give up. That we would persevere on the mission you've given us. Because this is going to bring you glory, it will bring us joy, and it will bring healing to others. And Lord, I pray for anyone who's listening right now, who's praying with me, who has not surrendered their life to you, that right now they would confess their sin, they would accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for them, and they would give their life now to follow you. And that they would allow you to begin that process of changing them from the inside out so that they too might go to their school, that they might go to work, they might go into their neighborhood, they go to their friend group, and they would love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived among them. And they would begin to also continue with the mission you've given us. Jesus, you told us to go into all the world and make disciples. So help us to accomplish this. That we would do this through our words, we do this through our actions, that we would do this through our presence. And even people who are opposed to us politically or opposed to us because they, they've categorized us, that they would still sense something different. Because we're not going to be like the world who's clamoring so loudly for their own way. Instead, we will just lovingly and quietly whisper your way. And it would draw people to you. Because Jesus, you came for us, you died for us, and you rose again so we could follow a risen, living Savior. So help us today, this week, the rest of this crazy year, to 
follow you and to live like you. And it's in your name we pray to you, Jesus. Amen.